Take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 34 and 35. We're going to be focusing on chapter 35 today. As you turn there, uh, we are in the cycle of woes. Tried to handle a couple of these with slightly larger chunks of Scripture as we've uh, been pondering the woe, the woe, the woe, and now we end this, 34 and 35, the end of the final woes here. 34 helpfully notes, it's judgment on the nations, this is kind of the, the culmination of all of the punishment that God will pour out upon the unbelieving nations of the world so that His people are established, uh, building to 35, which is where I will be reading and where we will spend the bulk of our study. This is the word of the Lord. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. And they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For water shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, and it shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they're fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return." And come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you please speak to us in the reading, in the preaching? And give us hearts of faith, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Don't normally do this. We're going to teach you a high-end, ultra kind of academic, but very important, theological concept. Right? You ready for the big words? Don't always use them, but you ready for the big words and the big concept. Eschatology precedes soteriology. Some of you already are like, "Ah, I'm out. Why am I listening to this sermon? I'm done. No, it's actually important. Eschatology precedes 
soteriology, meaning, weirdly enough, counterintuitively to what many of us would actually think this is good theology, is that your view of the end times precedes your view of salvation. In fact, actually, you could say your view of the end times is in many ways more important than your doctrine of the cross. And some of you are already going, uh, heebie-jeebies, well, uh, I don't understand that. We, we disagree with our views of the end times. We have different opinions on the views of the end times. We have different elders on our session that have different views of the end times. How can the pastor stand up front, or one of the pastors stand up front and say that uh, eschatology, the end times, precedes even your doctrine of the cross? Well, the way that we normally kind of think of this, and you all do this intuitively, is that we talk about it from the perspective of salvation. Salvation means I have to be saved from something. What am I saved from? Now, some of you grew up in theological traditions that were very good at this. They had a very well, well, maybe not informed, but well-used doctrine of hell. If you do not know Jesus and you die, you will pass from this life into the life to come where you will endure eternal torment. And that is all true. That's eschatology. That's the end times. That's that you will pass into something later. That's the life to come. But the life to come has to inform our understanding of salvation. Without that doctrine of hell, the cross doesn't make that much sense. Why on earth would Jesus die on the cross? Seems like a really cruel way to make people's lives better. Seems like a a rotten mechanism to take care of God's people. Why would you see someone die, undergo the wrath of God in order to provide salvation? Well, salvation from something. Salvation from the eternal wrath of God, and suddenly the cross kind of comes into greater clarity. Suddenly the gospel comes into greater priority. I'm saved from something. Eschatology. I'm saved from hell. I'm saved from wrath. I'm saved from judgment. Now, one of the unfortunate realities, I guess, of kind of living in a branch of the church uh, in America, by and large, that that doesn't tend to um, kind of be aggressive theologians or uh, aggressive Bible scholars all the time, is that a lot of us have grown up in traditions that that was kind of where our eschatology stopped. And in fact, actually, that kind of truncated, that abbreviated eschatology produced an, an abbreviated soteriology. My end times view ends up being just, I don't want to go to hell. And then my doctrine of salvation functionally becomes, this is how I don't go to hell. And the problem with that, though, is that it's wonderfully ill-informed because it's only part of the story. In fact, actually, it's such a small part of the story that it, it leaves out, really, the entire created order. And it makes passages like Isaiah 34 and 35 make little sense at all. It's why some of us that have grown up in traditions that had truncated uh, eschatology like this, an abbreviated version of the end times, only uh, hell that we have to get out of, 
so many of them, they didn't preach from the Old Testament. Because the only thing that mattered was that kind of quick and brief come to Jesus moment so that you don't go to hell. And offered very little explanation as to the very fabric of creation itself. Which interestingly is exactly what chapter 35 is about. And friends, chapter 35, and where we're going to focus today, is eschatology. It's an explanation of kind of what the goal of Christianity is. It's being written in a time in which the judgment of God is very obvious, it's very clear, and it's impending. The doom that is about to descend upon them is very clear to them. They have a nation that's getting ready to invade and wipe them off of the map. They have another nation that they have allied with that's supposed to protect them, but they're betraying them and not even good friends. They're staring down the barrel of God's judgment. And at this point, it's obvious it is certain and impending doom. And God answers not just with a a statement of that impending doom, not just a, a, a way to get out of that impending doom, but he answers with an answer on the fullness of his kingdom and the fullness of creation. This is what the end looks like. This is what the goal is. This is what salvation leads to, not just a get out of hell free card, but a robust understanding of God's work inside creation. We're going to see three kind of movements and then one set of applications. Movement one, idea one, is in verses one and two. The end goal of this kingdom of God, the end goal of creation itself, the end goal of this salvific process that God is up to, is a redemption of the entire created order. This is so intriguing to me. The way it starts, look, we are talking now at the end of the final woe and now talking about specifically the reign of God, this great kingdom, and where does it begin? The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. Now remember, this isn't a part of the world in which the wilderness is not hospitable like here. Right? I mean, we every year read stories of folks that get lost in the North Carolina, South Carolina, foothills, mountains, Hard to call them mountains. I know they were originally the biggest on our continent, but have worn down over time. But you find some, you know, 13-year-old kid that took a wrong turn, missed mom and dad, have been living out in the woods for five or six days. And yeah, okay, they had a hard time of it, but they're fine, right? Our, Our climate is largely nice. We have streams that are by and large everywhere. It's okay, you're probably not gonna find a ton of food, but most Americans can go without food for four or five days. It's not fun, but it's okay. Not here. (laughs) Not this part of the world. This is a part of the world that if you go ill-prepared into the wilderness, that's the last mistake you make. Well, it might lead you to the mistake that then ends your life abruptly, but it's the one that gets you. Their wilderness was dangerous. Their wilderness was dry. There was no water. There was no natural food in so many of these places. It was a hard climate, at least in this part of the world. 
And interestingly, what's happening as God's kingdom comes, what does it look like under this reign of Christ? The wilderness, the the wild land, the dry land, the inhospitable land, the uninhabitable land, the desert itself, the bad places will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. And uh, crocus would be a beautiful flower. What you're talking about here is the, the inhospitable places, the uninhabitable places suddenly become these places that are filled with the beauty of life, filled with plants, filled with blossoms, filled with flowers, filled with glory and grandeur. It would be like the difference here perhaps in your yard if it's filled with red clay. To take that top 18 inches of red clay off and fill it with some dark black Midwestern dirt and plant all the grass and the flowers that you can imagine, water it through the summer and to see that red clay be replaced by something that produces the brilliance and best of the created order. Some of you, when you travel, you like to go to those, um, admittedly, I think you're slightly weird on this one, but you, you like to go visit the beautiful gardens. You might go to Callaway Gardens or some of the other famous gardens throughout the southeast and to look at all of the beauty that God has made. You walk through the rose gardens in Chattanooga or other places and Furman, things like that. And that's weird that that's, in essence, what's being described and verses 1 and 2 is the created order is, is being redeemed in such a way that the uninhabited places are no longer wild and uninhabited, but filled with beauty and life. In fact, actually, what we're hearing in verses 1 and 2 are, are, are echoes of Genesis 1 and 2. What we're hearing in in verses 1 and 2 are kind of the lingering kind of echoes bouncing around of the command of God to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We're reminded of really what creation looked like when it started. A planet with no sin, a planet with no weeds, a planet with no curse and no difficulty that's made good in every way and right and true and proper, but with one specific garden placed in the middle of it. And God making two, a king and a queen, to reign in that garden, and that king and queen farmer to then take that garden and expand it the entirety of the created world. You think about it, really, that's what their task was. The entirety of planet Earth was good, but it was wild. And so their mission in creation was to be fruitful, multiply, make more kings and queens and farmers, and to have those farmers fill the earth, fill it with beauty and order and efficiency, and glory and grandeur. And interestingly, how how does the story of creation end? Really, with the fulfillment of the beginning. The created order itself is redeemed in the places that no one would want to live, the places that people are unable to inhabit, suddenly become filled with flowers. Verse 2, it shall blossom abundantly. Even the land itself 
will rejoice with joy and singing. I love thinking about that. Like, what a, what a beautiful picture of the desert itself crying out in song. One of the churches I've worked at in the past had a, a long-running uh, mission commitment with a church in the middle of uh, the Andes uh, mountains in Peru in, in high, high mountain desert. And I knew that when we got there, the climate would look a little different. And I remember kind of getting off of the plane in Lima, and then you kind of take a, a nighttime train ride and then bus ride up until you get into these massive mountains in the middle of the morning. And I remember the first time I was there just thinking, this is unbearably lonely. Because these huge mountains, and there's nothing good growing. It's rocks, and it's empty, and it's lonely. And here with the mountains instead singing the very glory of God. The glory of Lebanon, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. So now these, these places that were known for their kind of verdant and green life, these places that were known for their uh, lovely agriculture, these places that were known for a, an ecosystem that sustained good growth and, and health, that's what even the hinterlands will be like. That's what the, the deserts will be replaced with. A return to the beginning and the created order being filled with beauty and blessing. Even so much so that the created order will see the glory of the Lord. That glory there is not again being hinted at kind of enter, uh, kind of in, in the abstract but really presenting Christ reigning inside the created order, not from outside it. Not the second person of the Trinity kind of reigning in the abstract from far away, but even governing from inside the created order, being and remaining man forever. The very created order has changed. Well, see, this is an extremely important point to discuss as we think about how it kind of transforms how we live. Realistically, if we think about kind of uh, our end times view dictating our, our, our doctrine of salvation, if it's just to get out of hell, so much of my life will then be kind of consumed, be consumed by just thinking about not making God angry. Right? If, if our doctrine of God is largely related to he's mad at me for my sin and going to send me to hell forever, and Jesus is the solution to that, which all that is true, but if that's where it stops, when we become a Christian and when we begin to grow, our entire relationship with God is constructed around his anger. I know some of you struggle with that. Some of you wrestle with the realities of Christianity because honestly, that's all you've ever known, that's all you've ever seen, and it's all entirely a relationship built around an angry God. I suspect for some of you, and there's very complicated reasons for that, but for some of you, it's be because our, our understanding of the end times was too small. 
That we were just dealing with uh, a solution to a specific, very narrow problem of God's judgment being poured out upon me. We forgot Romans 8 and a whole bunch of other places that it's, it's not just me that's groaning out under the weight of sin and struggle. It's the very created order. And as a result, the entirety of it's going to be made new. The entirety of it will be transformed. It actually gives us the opportunity to think of of something different. Not just being saved from something, but being saved to something. Not just being saved from God's wrath, that's important, and right and true and proper. Do not hear me say that's bad. But not only being saved from wrath, but also being saved to something. Beauty and goodness and greatness and wonder. You see that what it ends up doing is it, maybe for some of us in the room that tend to be a little bit more cynical, it provides us with a theology of optimism. That we're not just being saved from the bad, we're being saved to the good and not just as a spiritual salvation but also a physical salvation. Not just my soul is being saved, my body is being saved. And honestly, for us as some of us age and we begin to hit that moment in time where our bodies begin to kind of break down, we're no longer 23 years old and invincible, but we begin to pick up those medical conditions that will define the rest of our days on this planet. It's wonderful to think of that my body is being saved to something. Not just from something. My body is being saved to serve the Lord. My body is being saved to beauty and greatness and majesty. What this gives us opportunity to do, friends, is that every time we interact with something good or beautiful or great or wonderful or awe-inspiring or overwhelming, it gives us chance to remember the life to come. Right this week, if you spent any time outside around the dinner time hour, we had a couple of wonderful sunsets. One of them from our house down in um, the southern part of the county, you got to see the beautiful pinks and purples with a beautiful rainbow through it all. It was marvelous. And to be able to stop and kind of in that moment to think that not only is this reminding me of something in the past, but it's reminding me of something in the future. That the good life is the life that's yet to come. And that God cares about creation. Maybe perhaps on a a bit more common of an illustration, some of you have pets in your house. I won't make fun of cats this time. It's traditional. I'll break with tradition, mix it up. Some of you have pets in your house that bring you immense joy. Right? Usually the sillier the pet, the more joy you have. Right? 
The best dog oftentimes is one that's smart enough to obey but stupid enough to be ridiculous. That's why we like them, right? They're smart enough to not, you know, do things, not go to the bathroom in the house, but stupid enough to make us just cackle at the dumb things that they do. And there's an element that those ridiculous dogs or those goofy cats, right? Kittens, I think, have to be the most just wonderfully comedic creature that God ever made. In some sense, are instructing us about the end goal of the created order, of the beauty and the joy and the delight and the design that our God has had. It gives us an opportunity to praise and to wonder and to marvel. You see, that's what's so significant. Our end times shape our daily living. Weirdly, your doctrine of the end times even shapes your pet (laughs) and how you think about it on a daily basis. It also shapes your kind of understanding of hope, how you see yourself existing in a fallen world. It shapes how you kind of walk in your day-to-day living. We see this in verses 5, 6, and 7. Not just will the created order be made new, verses 1 and 2, but 5, 6, and 7, the created order, and specifically us, but the created order is healed. It's made new verses 1 and 2, 5, 6, and 7. It's healed. Look at this. I love this. Wonderful. The eyes of the blind are opened. Ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute sing for joy. Why? The transition at the end of verse 6 seems a bit confusing. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert and the burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground of springs of water and the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Because not only is the created order being made new, it's being healed as part of that. The consequences of sin are being undone. The fall is being undone. The curse is being undone. It's being made new. So that all of the mess that we've watched since Genesis 3 is gone. I love that. Five and six deal specifically with humans. We are made new. We are healed. We are restored. Our bodies are things that God cares for so that our blindness is repaired, so that our deafness is repaired, so that our bodies are repaired because God cares about who we are. Again, it's been one of the great blessings of this church that as we've grown, we've added healthy people But we've added unhealthy people. We've added those that, praise God, are in strength, and we've added those, praise God, that are in struggle. Both of which being portraits of the Lord's mercy to us. 
That even in the midst of that struggle, your body is an object lesson about the end times, what's coming in the future. That as your body breaks down, as your body hurts, as it it grows weary, as it doesn't work the way that you want it to work, as you begin to start breaking things in your sleep, how did that happen? Wake up in a new injury from sleeping. To know that this is, it's an object, it's a lesson teaching me about what God is doing in the end. That yes, this life, this 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years, however many I get, this life will be dominated by pain. But that life will not. And interestingly, it won't even be dominated by time or the end of it. (laughs) I live constantly with some form of a ticking clock. So do you. In that life, we will not. Many of us live with a very, very clear and very definite understanding that we're on borrowed time. I feel that very deeply. There will be a day where I will be called home, where this body will stop working, where my time here will be finished. thought that was already happened, actually. But even that, is an object lesson about what comes. The day where the Lord makes all things new, even our bodies. One of my professors in seminary used to talk at length to say that perhaps sometimes we're a bit incorrect or imprecise with our language or imbalanced maybe. That in the Christian church and the Christian tradition we talk so much about having immortal souls He said, maybe perhaps we need to be a little bit more careful in making sure that we note that we have immortal bodies, that your body will die, but it's not going to stay dead. Either it will be raised to life, this life forever, or it will be raised to judgment, the judgment of chapter 34 forever, but it will be raised unto eternal life or unto eternal death, but your body will be raised for you are physical creatures as well as spiritual. I think perhaps this gives us the opportunity to have a little bit of perspective as the created order breaks down around us, when we encounter Murphy's Law, when we encounter the ravages of time and age, when we encounter illness or sickness, when we encounter difficulty, to know this created order points us to a greater greater created order. And while this one is filled with difficulty and suffering and sorrow and sadness, all of that is preparation for what is to come. Where there is no suffering, where there is no sorrow, where there is no sadness or frustration, where even the things that are impossibly broken are the things that begin to flourish Waters breaking forth in the wilderness where there is no water. Burning sand that can't hold water suddenly becomes a pool. The thirsty ground is so filled with water that it begins to hold it and flourish. Even the places that were 
so wild that even the bad animals inhabited suddenly become the places filled with fruits and vegetables. A hopeful and transformed life to come. A remade, created order. A healed, created order. And the third thing, verses 8 through 10, we see it's a holy, created order. A highway shall be there. Now this is perhaps a an illustration that might not kind of resonate with all of our souls. But this is an important illustration that's being introduced, this idea of the highway, because what's about to happen in the nation of Israel is they are about to be invaded. And there was no kind of greater concept for the Jew than uh, their understanding of who God is than through the land. It was their inheritance. It was their proof of his blessing. It was their identity. They were called by the name of the land. They identified the worship of God with the city of God, with the name of God, with the place of God. They were in so many ways synonymous with the land. In fact, they actually have built into their religious and legal code that at the end of a certain number of years, all land ownership reverted to the person who, land, who owned it. You couldn't, in theory, even sell land. You only were able to rent it for a time, lease it. They were connected to the land. And they're getting ready to interact with God's judgment and his justice as they've sinned against the Lord. And so they're going to be removed from the land and have their greatest identity taken from them. Their greatest connection with who God is and how they understand Him taken from them. Their greatest blessing and source of blessing taken from them. Their land was going to be removed. And so now as we go to understand the holiness of the kingdom of God, there is introduced a highway. A highway that exists from all of the hinterlands, all of the places where they've been taken, all of the places where they've been removed to, where their slavery has pulled them away, where their bondage has placed them. A highway that leads back home. And that highway shall be called, verse 8, the way of holiness. And it has some very uh, essential properties, this path that leads back home in the kingdom of God. Now understand, this is not a literal path. It's teaching us this very spiritual and very important reality. And people of God will be brought home, but what will that life be like? What will that path be like? It will be so holy that even the unclean can't cross it. The Jews understood holiness to be a thing that was contagious and uncleanliness to be a thing that was contagious and contaminated and they understood the contaminating effect of sin. For them, it wouldn't even be able, sin wouldn't be able to touch this way. They'll be so perfect and so righteous and so holy, contamination can't happen. And this way will be theirs so much so I think perhaps one of my favorite verses I've read in a long time, I know I've read this verse a dozen times before, but even if they're fools, they shall, they shall not be able to go astray. I love that. How encouraging God is. 
His way will be so kind and so tender and so faithful that even if you're stupid, you can't get lost. Even if you try, you can't get lost. Even if you want to, you can't get lost. This is in kind of illustrative fashion the end of Romans 8. What can separate me from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus? What? Nothing. Famine, sword, death, demons, the devil, anything in the created order? Can anything in the created order separate me from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus? Nothing, including me. (laughs) I'm part of the created order, so are you. We can't even separate ourselves from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. And I love this kind of portrait of, look, this is, this way of holiness is so effectively managed by God that once his people are brought into it, you're gonna make it to the end. In some ways, it it feels to me like, uh, I guess sometimes, for some of us, when we were a child and rather skittish, perhaps a little bit nervous in that first time that we rode the really big roller coaster, right? There was a lot of anxiety, a lot of pressure getting onto the roller coaster, right? And sometimes it may have taken you two or three tries. You might have had a little bit of too much fuss and had to get removed before it started. But there was a point, wasn't there, where the bar came down across your lap if you're really old, or the bars came down across your chest if you're slightly less old. And you sat there and then you realized, I might not think this is a good idea anymore. I might not want to be here right now. And the ride starts and it starts going up the big hill and you're like, no, I'm definitely convinced I don't want to be here right now. But can you get off? Well, you're stuck then, friends. And it's probably going to be pretty scary for a bit. And then it's going to be really scary. And then it's going to be really scary. And then it's going to be the best thing you can imagine as you zip and zag through all of the turns. And praise God, in his path, the support beams don't crack and the roller coasters don't go flying off. You're guaranteed to make it to the end. There's an element of almost, it's like that roller coaster ride of like, once you get on, you're stuck. And it's gonna lead you to the end. And the end is a good place because God lives there. You have this idea of safety introduced in verse nine, no no lion shall be there. No ravenous beast will be able to attack. The people of God shall walk there. An amazing thing to think about, like this description of walking through a land that's filled with predators. Not really worrying about it. Not being worried. You know, it's, I guess for many of us, probably a pretty foreign thought. Of, I've lived in the South most of my life. Our, the number of known predators here in the South, very low for most of the part here. Right? You may have to kind of shake your boots out before you put them on if you're camping. Make sure you hang your food so the bears don't come and you know, try to give you kisses in the middle of the night. But by and large, we're not, we don't have to worry about these things. But a part of the world where lots of things can kill you, the snakes can kill you, the lions can kill you, the bears can kill you, all sorts of things can kill you. To think of the children even walking this path, protected and in safety, And what it'll look like, verse 10, the people of God will walk there singing. 
joy and delight. Because we've made it. It's a journey of gladness to a home of gladness. For we are headed home to be with our King. We're headed home. Some of you, that idea of home is perhaps one of the most dear concepts in your life. You love home. That's what he's describing, except bigger and better and greater and grander. Your idea of home, as important as it is to you, is only this big. He's talking this big. It's huge. Others of you, the idea of home is a bit more bitter, a bit sharper. It's not a place you've enjoyed being. Well, friends, in your situation, it's the contrast that's held forth, the place where you can finally rest. For our God is there. What do we do with a passage like this? Well, one, it needs to shape how we live and shape how we think, but interestingly, verses three and four actually give us the, the, the command. What am I supposed to do with a passage like this? <laughs> I'm supposed to strengthen my weak knees, make firm the feeble legs. And say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, you're going to make it. Not because of you, (laughs) not very trustworthy. Fear not because God, your God is going to do it. Your God is going to be the one who destroys the enemies. Your God is going to be the one who remakes the created order. Your God is going to be the one who heals everyone. He will come and save you. Stay the course. Don't grow weary. Don't go crazy. Don't go absent and check out. Don't grow angry. Don't grow bitter. Behold, your God will come and make everything everything right in the created order. You see, friends, eschatology precedes soteriology. Your end times precedes in your thinking your doctrine of salvation. And so many of us have forgotten not just that we're being saved from sin, but that we are being saved to being fully human in the presence of our God. And as a result, I don't have to quit at life because he's taking me to something good and great. And in fact, actually, and this is the thing that's just the most marvelous, he doesn't wait to start when you die. He starts now. That's the shocking part is that he's even started now inside the curse remaking you and your heart and your mind and your will transforming you. As a result, don't quit. Don't grow tired. Don't grow weary. This is the God who will come and save you. Let's pray. Lord, we marvel at your kindness to us, undeserved. Certainly we do deserve your judgment. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. And you have saved us from sin, but saved us something too, even greater. Holiness, 
Obedience, healing, and a completely transformed created order. Forgive us for thinking too small and forgive us for quitting too quickly. Would you give us faith and hope and joy and peace where we do not have it? For Christ's sake, amen.